The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. It is December 9th, 2020, and there are 675 days until the Vancouver municipal election. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good to talk to you again, Ian. It's been uh, a little longer than we had intended, but some technical delays kind of kiboshed our recording last Wednesday, and I appreciate everyone's forbearance in the interim. And we are planning a show next week that is going to be doing some interesting work, which we will touch on at the end of the show, because I think you are going to really enjoy it. And we just have so much to talk about today. Oh my God, do we have so much to talk about today. But first, you know what you should visit? Patreon.com slash Report. At Patreon.com slash Report, you can find out how to support the show, keep it going, help us make more of them. It is absolutely <laughs> essential and invaluable that we have not only like monetary support, but like a, a such a strong community of people who are engaged and active and interested in civic politics. And so it, it's really wonderful to, to have all of your support. We really do appreciate it. And if you are able to contribute, we'd certainly, certainly appreciate it. If you're unable to, you know, for whatever reason, it is, of course, trying times. Please don't feel mm-hmm. obligated to, but, you know, we, we always do appreciate whatever you can give at patreon.com slash report. Now, what are we going to get to today? The big news, of course, is the budget. The defund the police budget, as the chief of police is calling it. Mm-hmm. And not just here, but also New Westminster. Well, mm-hmm. not even defunding in New Westminster, but we'll get to that. Not even defunding in Vancouver. Yeah, it's it's defunding in a very undefundy sense. However, Vancouver Council has also supported a motion to decriminalize drug possession and raising the empty homes tax. Also, Vancouver papers have apparently been selling news coverage to UBC, according to some documents that have recently been revealed, and some new intrigue with the NPA lawsuit against grief, rather unrelated to the NPA lawsuit, by a person who's on the NPA board against Green Councillor Michael Weeb. Then, of course, we're going to be checking in with some of Ian's work with the duty of neutrality beyond Saguenay, something from the British Columbia Humans Association and municipal councils having prayers at the beginning of their meetings. Finally, there is some new results of a survey in as it pertains to Stanley Park, which we had actually told you about a couple of episodes ago and what they feel about road space and usage. Last but not least, in the spirit of the holiday, North Vancouver has decided against banning Christmas lights after 11 p.m. Christmas was saved. Yes. Let's get to the budget. What a frou-frou that was. There were three days of speakers, like over 200 people debating and speaking to council, and it was finally passed by council yesterday by a majority of only one vote, which I kind of was surprised by. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what happens in a city if the budget doesn't pass. I'll have to look that up. 
Yeah, I think they just have to pass a new one. Yeah. Like, I think I think it there's a back. statutory requirement mm-hmm. um, that they have a budget. So, but this was a contentious one. Council mm-hmm. had committed multiple times through the year to keeping the property tax increase to five percent. An initial mm-hmm. staff report, I think, came out suggesting that to fund all of the things councillors wanted to do and the ongoing costs of maintaining a city and salary increases to all the staff that the city employs, they would have had to increase it by 12%. So they were eager not to piss homeowners off that much. They only want to piss them off $100 a year. Yeah, and I think that's at a, an amount that the city council can probably afford to piss off homeowners with. I feel like the major problem in this is that the major revenue raising tool of the city is still just property tax and there isn't any other like strong revenue stream other than transfers and and fees. Other cities in the world are able to implement sales taxes or able to implement their own income taxes. Like, you know, I'm not suggesting that it be huge, but I don't think that property tax, especially in a property market necessarily as distorted as the one in Vancouver is one that is best served by an exclusively property tax revenue raising government. Definitely. And during the election, it was a big issue where one city, Kennedy Stewart and a number of others talked about a land value capture tax or other mechanisms to try to raise some funds and also just leverage the power that cities can have to affect the market effectively. Yeah. The other thing weighing on council this year in particular has been COVID and the utter shattering of their fiscal capacity as businesses went under and they had to cut parking revenue for a couple months to try to just keep people moving around areas. And then the province, as I think we talked about, didn't come through with the big bag of money they wanted because they implemented a very weird formula. Well, they, they came up with roughly one quarter of what the city of Vancouver was expecting and hoping for, 16 million versus 60 million, which is a kick in the teeth. It's $44 million that is now unaccounted for and is going to have to be made up for in some manner. It is like going to be a tough year for municipal governments all over the world. And I'm, you know, disappointed that Minister Freeland at the federal level is is kind of talking about how modern monetary theory and the idea of just using fiscal controls and uh, a sort of more loose money to stimulate the economy and pay for the things that we need seems, quote, too risky for Canada. But that's not something that the city can control, no matter how many letters we write. As a result of, of the budget constraints, staff recommend the 1% cut to the VPD budget. And this is the, the banner headline of the budget story. However, the police wanted more money, a 2% increase of $6.4 million to $346.6 million. Yeah, the police board, having seen staff's recommended budget, decided, no, we don't really want to reduce the size of the police in this city, even though it is a downturn public safety Mm -hmm. should take a priority. And so they came back and the way it works in BC at the first step is the police board presents a budget to the city to which the city can vote in favor of or reject. And if the city rejects the police board budget and gives them a different budget, it's then up to the police board to decide whether they want to challenge that to the province because they can appeal their budget. Could you imagine if like the school board could appeal their budget? That would be hilarious. And 
I mean, the province would just fire the school yeah, board, but that's what happens. So it came down to this conflict. VPD had submitted their memo of talking about how, what it would mean if they didn't get this increase. They submitted this massive memo that I actually looked at and started skimming, and then it was just too big. It was 280 pages. Most of that was letters of support, and some of it at the on the cover pages was their justification, where they did note that the overall crime rate had dropped in this past year, but that violent crime was still about the same. And the perception of crime data that they've done, essentially when they ask people, how, how, how crimey do you feel the city is? That showed a lot of people felt it was very crimey and therefore we deserved a lot more money for the cops. Wow, that's a logical chain that I don't really understand, to be honest. Police feelings don't care about your facts? Yeah, I guess so. Or apparently the only facts that pe- the police care about are feelings. There you go. They had... Additionally to that, hundreds of letters of support, a number of businesses. I think I saw like London Drugs and some major companies in there. Boo, London Drugs, I trusted you. Business Improvement Associations, unsurprisingly, Tourism Vancouver. A few ethnic organizations like the Pakistani Canadians, I believe, or Pakistani Cultural Club of Vancouver, the Musqueam Band, and Sikh organization, as well as lots and lots of individuals talking about how unsafe they would feel if the police got a dollar less than a two percent increase in their budget number one bullshit you won't feel any different you're going to have exactly the same feelings and that's going to be entirely dependent on the news reporting that is done on crime in the city or the amount of anecdotes that you hear from your friends on what crimes have happened to them vancouver has an exceptionally high rate of property crime but a like relatively low rate of violent crime it is a, a relatively safe city as things go. I I know that there are vested interests in people like trying to increase property values and, you know, prevent unsavory elements, whatever that means from, you know, loitering in front of businesses. But to be honest, I feel like people have not fully allowed their consciousnesses to be raised on like the alternatives to policing. And and that is maybe one of the bigger shortfalls to the defend the police movement is that they haven't articulated a a clear path forward. There there have been plans, obviously, but there there does need to be, I think, a clearer message on how defunding of the police would work. Or, you know, if we're gonna echo Minneapolis, disbanding entirely of the police. Indeed. I don't think they can legally disband them in BC, given the Police Act, but we'll see where the Police Act reforms no, go. No, they can't. No, for sure they can't. But that, that would be a provincial responsibility. Many of the speakers, probably nearly all of them of the 200 who spoke to the budget, were speaking to the question of the police budget. I didn't watch them all. I don't know if anyone other than the councillors watched them all and some city staff. So I can't say how many were on either side. I know that a lot of the people who are speaking against the police increase or speaking for a defund or a decrease amount to the police noted a number of times the ways the Vancouver police seem to be acting in defiance of municipal council. We've mentioned this in the last episode where council has passed motions supporting different approaches and meanwhile to minor possession issues or uh, minor crime. And meanwhile, the Vancouver police are creating a like neighborhood safety unit to patrol for the poors. And then undoubtedly there were a number of speakers as well who 
cited their fears and what they felt and the concerns they had and how much they appreciate the police. And I'll not speculate about the racial dynamic of those two groups, but I think we could. We could, but let's not. (laughs) The debate was actually fairly interesting and had a bit of a surprise incident in the middle of it. There was a motion to change the chair of the finance committee. Yeah, so right at the start of yesterday's debate, when the actual budget was under consideration, the finance committee was doing the work on this. So rather than the mayor, Kennedy Stewart, be in the chair, Melissa DiGenova was in the chair as she has generally been the chair of the committee of the whole or finance committee. But anyone who's followed council knows there's been some consternation and frustrations between the councillors at different levels. And I guess many councillors felt there were issues with DeGenova's handling as chair. And so they motioned to put Rebecca Bly, the independent councillor and former NPA member in. I think this took about an hour to sort through. There were a number of complaints just technical issues, like people forgetting to unmute themselves or things like that, of course. And at one point, it's alleged on Twitter, I didn't watch this whole debate, but DeGenova, I guess, decried this as an unfair, you know, it was sprung on her the night before. Nevertheless, the final vote was five to four in favor, with Gene Swanson, Christine Boyle, Rebecca Bly, Pete Fry, and Michael Weeb voting in favor of changing the chair. The NPA members voted against it. And Kennedy Stewart and Adrian Carr abstained from voting on this. I think that's pretty politic on on the part of Stewart. I don't exactly know why Carr would have chosen to abstain. I know that Melissa can be, let's say, strident and and perhaps like she she certainly had a very vocal and and clash heavy reputation on council during the last term. So. I think this is definitely going to be of concern for her going forward, especially if she eventually wants to run for mayor, which, you know, I've heard some scuttlebutt about, maybe not this time, but eventually. And yeah, I don't know. It's going to be like essential for her to like learn how to broaden support and, and like build those alliances. If you want to one, prove yourself to be an effective counselor and to like be able to win a one mayoral nomination and then, and then get elected. I gathered as well from following the debate kind of via Twitter and elsewhere as I ran around chasing my toddler all day that there were a number of other procedural attempts by particularly the MPA members to drag out or stall the debate or push it off to the next day. Things like would they vote to continue the hearing past 5 p.m. when they would normally finish? And I guess the NPA was opposed to that. They'd rather just reconvene at the next regular council meeting, but the rest of the councillors, the progressives and Bly, wanted to finish it all in a day. And so they eventually did. And so the NPA just lost vote after vote, it sounded like. Where the votes got almost a little bit easier to discuss was, as we mentioned in the debates on the amending the police budget specifically, because on those issues, Melissa DiGenova and Sarah Kirby Young declared themselves in conflict and abstained from all specific votes on changing the police budget specifically, as they are both married to cops. Yes, and since we are, you know, heavily focused on conflict of interest nowadays, this was like the right thing to do. I I do always think that it's kind of unfortunate that like a person who was involved, like 
in the city has to abstain from votes that they might like i i wish that there was some kind of way to proxy or or allow another like or move their vote to another counselor but i you know i understand and i think this is probably the best system that we could effectively come up with without contorting ourselves backwards and and they did the right thing and i'm glad that they're being more careful because we don't need more by-elections in the event that the action against weeb goes forward successfully just on that note i'll add that michael weeb did declare himself in conflict on a couple of other votes i don't know the full details around this but he recused himself from the votes on the fire department funding and library access for people who have library fines outstanding unclear what conflicts he would have there. Maybe he has outstanding library fines. Yeah, that's that sounds like the only possible. <laughs> he, he's being cautious. <laughs> that sounds so ridiculous, though. He's being cautious. We'll talk more about Michael Weeb next week. Library access? Really? Uh, so the debate on the police budget comes forward when Christine Boyle proposed freezing the budget at the 2020 level. So instead of increasing it to the $346 million that the police board wanted, it would stay at 340.9 million. Before they could vote on that, Gene Swanson moved an amendment to that amendment to reduce it by 5 million and redirect that money to, quote, community-led safety initiatives. That didn't go over well with the other councillors as only Christine Boyle and Gene Swanson ended up voting for the reduce the police budget motion. On the other end of the spectrum, Conlin Hondrick also moved to increase the police budget by $6 million, and that also only garnered two votes, Hardwick and Lisa Dominato. The final vote, though, comes down pretty much along party lines with the progressives, the mayor, Christine Boyle, Gene Swanson, and the Greens voting for Boyle's amendment to freeze the police budget. The NPA members who were voting, Colleen Hardwick, Lisa Dominato, and the independent Rebecca Bly all voted against that. Three is not enough. So the motion passes and the police budget was frozen. But not necessarily finalized because Chief Adam Palmer of the VPD says they will not be able to hire 61 officers and has left the door open to an appeal to the province. This is something that police boards and, and the, the police force can do if they feel that city council has not appropriately allocated funds for them. And they can basically appeal to a higher power because both the, the police being regulated under the BNA Act, under the, the realm of the province and municipalities, of course, being a creature of the province, the province does effectively have final say, which is one of the reasons why the province can, for example, fire school boards. So the one challenge, though, for the chief of police to make that argument is he has to argue that it would be impossible to maintain public safety with the budget given to him by council. Given that last year, Vancouver was safe, I don't see how we would be less safe with them having the exact same money or like utterly unsafe. I mean, the argument is a real cut, but like freezing, freezing the budget is a real cut. So we'll see if the police chief and the police board move forward with that appeal. And if they do what the director of the police and ultimately Mike Farnworth, the solicitor general and was the minister of public safety decide to do with that appeal. It would be interesting. I'd like it just for the politics of it, 
I, I also would find that interesting. I think it might highlight how not in line Minister Farnworth is with the general movement and, and the tenor of the conversation right now. But, you know, he's always welcome to prove me wrong. Nevertheless, council now had freed up some money that they had to decide what to do with, because when you move money around in the budget like that, you get to decide where to redirect it. And so the $2.5 million that they effectively saved by freezing that, because some of it just keeps them within line of the 5% property tax increase. Well, $450,000 has been redirected from cleaning Vancouver's streets to actually cleaning Vancouver's streets with some enhanced street cleaning. There's another 400k for the new independent auditor general's office. I think we actually talked about the local AG a few weeks ago and we speculated whether anyone would vote against it and I think it ultimately passed unanimously. It did, much to my disappointment. There were also $300,000 for community policing centers which are I guess a step in the right direction. They it, it's one of those things where where they need to be paired with more community outreach services and like general community services that are able to respond to things like mental health calls or like nonviolent disputes without the threat of deadly force. And finally, 300,000 for park cleanliness and safety because cleaning up our parks. Well, fair enough. So final budget comes forward and like you said, narrowly passes six to five now with the other NPA members free from their specific conflict and able to vote on the budget as a whole and joined by Rebecca Bly against the slightly larger quote-unquote progressive bloc. Vancouver passed its budget. Vancouver did. So did New Westminster, which has also elected to freeze their police budget. Yes, at a recent budget debate hearing, Councillor Nadine Nakagawa made a motion to send the police budget back to the New West Police Board and ask them to submit one with a 0% increase for 2021. The police board there in New West was seeking to increase their budget from $31.6 million to $33.33 million, which I believe is a 5.5% increase. Whew. Like, I am perfectly happy to police officers well. It's, you know, a career position. I. It's just that, like, one, do there have to be as many people as they are policing, and two, are they being allocated to the right jobs? I remember hearing on 99% Invisible like a year or so ago about some experiment to just like totally reform the police in one American town where they like got rid of the standard, you know, blue semi-military uniform and, and outfitted everyone in like green blazers. <laughs> and like, I can see the need for, like, a green blazer force instead of what is effectively a kind of paramilitary organization existing within our city. It's worth noting in the city of Vancouver, police start at 70000 a year while they're under probation. And if you become a first-class constable after four years, you get $100,000 a year. Plus benefits. Many, many benefits. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good wage. That's a good... That's a good career. It's a good wage. Councillor Nakagawa told the local paper there, the motion was out of a response for demands for justice and reform. She referenced those who wanted to see cities look at different ways of doing work. And she said she would not support any increase for the police budget, recognizing even if this is at the cost of increased wages, etc. Her motion was ultimately voted four to three. Councillors 
Trent Adu, Patrick Johnston, and Jamie McAvoy supported her, while councillors Chinu Das and Chuck Putchmeyer and the mayor, Jonathan Cote, opposed. The the one that I'm surprised about is, is Mayor Cote, because this kind of seems like it's up, up his alley, but I also imagine that he's the chair of the police board and, and would have some kind of, I mean, if he's going to be on the board that is asking for the money, I can understand him voting for the request that he technically made. Yeah, I don't know the intricacies of New West Council politics as well. I believe they were all, all of these councillors were elected on the New West and District Labour Council slate. So they're all in the generally progressive realm, and they're still a split almost down the middle. What there wasn't a split on was a recent vote on Vancouver Council for the drug decriminalization letter that we mentioned in last episode of the week before, in which Council has unanimously passed Mayor Stewart's Ask Ottawa to Decriminalize Drugs letter, mentioned before, since it doesn't seem like the VPD is that interested in listening to direction from Council, how much this would stop the VPD from harassing poor and homeless people, though we can, of course, hope, fingers crossed, touch wood, etc., it's good to see council, you know, unanimous on this. It's one thing that Vancouver has generally had positive on in that there is somewhat of a political consensus around the need for harm reduction and these kind of approaches. We saw that with Sam Sullivan's four pillars approach. And so that trend continuing through today, even if they, you know, differ on different elements of it, they still all do share the idea that People shouldn't be thrown in jail for uh, minor things like this, like just hold, being poor or holding drugs. Instead, we should try to treat this more as a health crisis. Yeah, exactly. And because that is what it is. And that is what I, I think it is to BC's credit that like almost every branch of the political establishment has has come down in favor of harm reduction. It doesn't matter which way they got there. They, they definitely got there via different ways, but we've come to, I think, the right attitude on this. And I think that should be celebrated. Just tying decriminalization into the police budget questions, like I'd put in the notes here, just to my snarky aside, maybe Kennedy could reduce the police budget if you wanted to, you know, really make a difference. But I think one of the things that was raised even by Councillor Boyle in the discussion around Vancouver's, and you raised it earlier, is the need to really start talking about the next steps. So what does future of lesser post-policing look like? And the more that gets fleshed out both locally and provincially through the Police Act review, that's when I think the work that activists have done over the last year in changing the conversation will really start to pay dividends. So it's going to be a long process, but I think we're starting to see a shift towards more mm -hmm. options and more approaches to this, which is positive in my view. Also coming out of Vancouver Council in the recent meetings, the empty homes tax is set to increase to 3%, uh, fulfilling a Kennedy Stewart campaign promise. The empty homes tax remains a controversial, though in my personal opinion, effective way of ensuring that our housing stock actually gets used for housing and not like as an investment instrument. <laughs> yeah, since Kennedy was elected, I think it was raised from like one to one and a half percent, but he had said we should raise it to three. And so as he promised, he's starting to get there. And it's kind of interesting tying this with some of the recent 
public statements by Kennedy Stewart. He's, I think, trying to carve out a bit more of a mm-hmm. progressive brand again for himself, trying to be a, not like far left, but clearly like not just vision continued, but hey, remember, remember what I campaigned for? I'm going to do that. And here's promise made, promise kept two years later. Action done. You know what? I, I've been complaining and I have to give credit where credit is due. This is a thing that is a thing. So good for him. Another thing that is a thing apparently is post media selling news coverage for UBC. Yeah, apparently UBC agreed to buy ten to fifteen thousand dollars in ads from post media who agreed to place news content or, or like native advertising basically and the seemingly resulted in some positive coverage of UBC. This is all revealed in the media partnership strategy back to school 2020. Yeah, Canada Land got a hold of this and released it and dug into a lot of the coverage since September 2020 when this was to take effect and did identify a couple stories in I believe it was the Vancouver Sun or the province that were weirdly sympathetic not like bad stories not like they twisted anything but just kind of fluffy boost up ubc i think they were talking about online learning or something like that kind of harmless stuff other than the fact there was no like advertorial disclaimer on it the document specifically has a heading where it says ubc expectations where it describes five op-eds to be placed and three stories produced and published in the sun and province during the first two weeks of september and UBC was hoping to get like earned media built off of this like blitz of coverage. Yeah, it doesn't really count as earned media if it's not. Oh, I think they wanted something in like the CBC to come off of. Like the, they wanted like knock on stuff. Probably not this though. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say this is sort of a Streisand effect. Yeah. But that of course brings me to the fabulous new service that we're launching here on the Canby Report. If you want us to write a fantastic story about you, just... Give us a call. Give us ten to fifteen thousand dollars, and we can rename the fucking podcast for all I care at that point. (laughs) Seriously, this is like a deeply improper use of, in my mind, both universities' funds and like journalistic arm of of post media. Like we have to be able to trust that. uh, I was going to say our news is impartial, but then I almost uh, laughed myself to death that their news is only dictated by the financial interests of the ownership of the paper and not any other uh, direct purchasing of news. (laughs) Well, and it really harms the reputation of all of the other journalists who work at these paper. Like we're about to talk about a Dan Fomano story and he works at the sun and we respect his work, but it's not great when you work at a place that sells out like this. Mm -hmm. And so Canada land reached out to UBC and post media and the editor of the Vancouver Sun for comment and heard nothing back from any of them. So we'll link to the story in the show notes. And you can, I guess, come to your own conclusions about this messy saga. You can also come to your own conclusions about whether you think a lawyer who is the person who filed suit against Michael Weeb, Green Counselor, respecting the conflict of interest, and is now sitting on the NPA board, is making his claim against Councillor Weeb for nonpartisan reasons. Yeah, so Musio was added to the membership of the directors of the Nonpartisan Association, the NPA, which is 
apparently distinct from the NPA caucus, as we've learned many times this year. Yeah. He's also joined by uh, founder of the UBC Free Speech Club, Angelo Isidoro, who's a little notorious for the... He's a provocateur. Yeah, far-right and white supremacist speakers at the club. And generally, I would not want to be associated with him. But I guess the other members of the board, like Ryan Warawa and Christopher Wilson, are fine with it. Yeah. I just call bullshit. If you're going to make a claim for partisan grounds, that's legitimate. It, it's legitimate if you think that a person from another party or the party itself is abusing their positions of power or their access to power for their own ends. If you believe that, you have every right to file a claim. Because it also, like, arguably, oppresses your rights to, like, have fair and uninfluenced votes on city council. What I despise is the idea that you can just be like, no, no, I have no partisan interest whatsoever. I have no reason to file this claim other than simply I am a, a deeply concerned citizen. Just offensive. He arguably has more standing as a partisan. Yeah, actually, that's true. <laughs> I mean, he has enough standing as a resident and a citizen under the act, as far as I understand it. But, you know, he has more interest in, you know, personal interest in the case as a partisan. And partisanship isn't a crime. No. In fact, it can, in many ways, be a, a good way to coalesce and synthesize ideas. Remember, it's the nonpartisan association, though. Well, in fairness, they also haven't been coalescing or synthesizing their ideas very much, if their council voting record is any indication. <laughs> Bazing. So, beyond that, now you are the uh, executive director of the BC Humanist Association. Yes, on parental leave right now, but that is my day job. And you've recently released a study on municipal prayers in British Columbia. This is, of course, stemming out of a Supreme Court of Canada decision uh, a couple of years ago that involved the town of Saguenay, Quebec, in which it was found that the Roman Catholic prayer that they had said at the beginning of council meetings violated the freedom of religion rights of the people who were in attendance and councillors who were. Yeah, the court specifically referenced, we don't have the establishment clause or whatever in the, that the U.S. has, but they our Supreme Court referenced a state duty of religious neutrality. Mm -hmm. I think they don't like the word secularism because of the translation in French, which goes to laicite, which sometimes refers to the let's ban Muslims from wearing clothes kind of thing that's problematic for a whole separate conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing about being on leave is that other people can do a lot of great work and put it out and you don't have to, you know, proofread a thorough report but you just get to kind of look at the great results of it. So I wasn't, you know, deeply involved in the final copies, but I worked well along with our summer students the last couple summers on this big report where we basically had volunteers and the summer interns go through the uh, minutes and the inaugural meeting minutes of every municipality in British Columbia. There's a couple hundred of them. So it's manageable. And, try to figure out if they started with a prayer or invocation. They found 23 that did that range in size from, you know, what is it, Spelumpchin to mm -hmm. Nanaimo. I think it's city of North Vancouver. You can tell that someone from the island did the final copy because they just wrote North Vancouver on here instead of strict. No. 
I know. Which North fan? <laughs> and the city of Victoria also on there, a pretty prominent one. That is surprising. Yeah. So none of them open a regular day with a prayer like they were doing in uh, Saguenay, but each of these cities or townships or what have you, these municipalities had a priest of some type. They were all Christian come and do a prayer before the inaugural session, which is a very ceremonial kind of, it's the oath reading essentially for the Mm -hmm. council. They don't do any quote unquote real business. And during this process, we'd emailed every district several times asking them if they were aware of the decision and if they were going to change their practice or you know what their practices were. Uh, a few have come back since the media coverage from this report release to say they are already changing things. Like I believe the city of Langley has already changed things and a few others are reviewing their stuff. So research can affect results. What, what is the optimal goal for, is it for it to just be removed entirely or is, is for a broader like multi-faith and humanist spectrum of, I don't want to say spirituality, but like your relationship with the universe? No, that's fair. Now belief system. The report itself leans more towards the, it's hard to, and we've done a little bit of writing on this at the Humanist Association, that it's really hard to properly be inclusive of everyone, particularly beliefs that contradict each other. Like, you can't say invocation that both meaningfully includes atheists and theists without it just kind of devolving into fuzzy, warm words that don't really mean anything. This comes up a bit because we've done work on the BC legislature's practice of starting each day sitting with a prayer, and there they let a different MLA do it. And so you do have some non-religious MLAs give more poetry readings or very weird things that'll happen. We found a number because we've transcribed all of those. The association's position is that there's not really a place for it. That's not to say there's not a place for religious MLAs or counselors. Obviously, there is, and they can bring those speeches into any other part, as is their right. Although the way our democracy works, I think most British Columbians would feel a bit uncomfortable if the mayor started arguing for a budget change based on their belief or not lack thereof. Yeah. Although I do think it's important for people to be honest. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's important for people to be honest that, you know, like a lot of my interest in in public policy in particularly as it relates to like public welfare is informed by my faith and i i think it would be disingenuous of me as a public official to say that like nope i am uninfluenced by any of the ideas that have been culturally or or like directly imparted to me through my like religious life but I, I wouldn't want to argue it. I, I just want to, ar- to be honest, I just want to argue it on a utilitarian basis. Well, and, and that's exactly it. When you're trying to reach across the aisle spiritually or what have you, you need to ground your arguments in secular, that is neither atheistic nor religious terms so that they are accessible to the largest cadre of the politic, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to frame your argument for a policy change 
in terms of the catechism because you're going to exclude a lot of people and not win over as many as you might by finding a different grounds for the argument. Mm -hmm. Now that's, you know, getting a little bit more into the weeds than the specific question of should council meetings start with a prayer. We have written a little bit about the interests and the value of territorial acknowledgements and, you know, Canada's duty to reconciliation and the value in there. We haven't dealt with the sticky question of what happens when an invited elder who may have been raised in a Christian church weaves those together. And mm -hmm. I honestly don't have a clue how to solve that yet. Lots more listening and thinking to be done there. Uh, and there are often often times where there is an invocation of, of Manitou or the Great Creator or mm -hmm. a, a First Nations belief system that, let's be honest, is still a religion. Mm -hmm. And so the question we kind of come back to with this is, at least with the councils we've looked at, they all did start with Christian prayers or Christian presenters. They were largely done by men. So there's a question of uh, gender representation there. And then a few do try to be a little bit more multi-faith or bring in others. But in one case, the District of Saanich had two different Christian clergy people. I think one was a United Church, so they thought it was a little bit more inclusive, which... It's not. It's, it's still, yeah, it's a, still a specific sect, right? Yep. So lots of interesting stuff in there. I think this is an interesting and relevant study here. Yeah, it pertains to, and it, it was me that decided that, like, I wanted to talk about this because I also remember reading the Saguenay decision in law school, and I, I, I thought it was interesting, in particular because it reaffirmed the general trend of the Supreme Court of Canada to find that freedom of religion, effectively in a state-to-person relationship context, means freedom from mm -hmm. religion. Stanley Park might also be free of cars if the survey is at all heated. There is a, a recent survey, which we plugged a couple of uh, episodes ago, on what you know users of Stanley Park want road space dedicated to, and it is back. Yeah, this is notable because the park board opened up the roads to non-road users like cyclists and pedestrians to help give people a little bit more space to get around without being all in everyone's bubbles when you were exercising during the pandemic. And they reversed that mm -hmm. at the end of the summer because it was always only a pilot project in the park board's terms. The park board survey has now found that 70% of the respondents said they would like to see some section of those road spaces dedicated to cyclists, 62% would like to see car-free days, and 33% would not want to see any changes and would want to keep the same amount of traffic, which really goes against much of the narrative, I think, being pushed in certain circles that you need to keep cars. Yeah, drivers would be horrified and you need you need to be able to drive through the park. That's why the park was designed. It was a driving park that you could, you know, experience the the majesty of, of Stanley Park in your car along the route. Well, now you can experience it, well, if the park board follows the survey, on your bicycle, which I think is even nicer because then you can actually breathe the trees in and not mm -hmm. the exhaust. 
you can breathe and stop and like check out vantage points and, and maybe even, you know, duck off down to the, the shore or stop the nine o'clock gun without inconveniencing everyone. Please don't stop your car on Stanley Park Road. <laughs> so like, I think, I think that's positive and I hope Parks Board decides that they will heed that survey much to, I'm sure, the chagrin of those horse-drawn carriages. Another survey that is a bit contentious here in Burnaby, where I am, is the Phase 2 public engagement of the Burnaby Mountain Gondolas survey that is out now until December 14th, so fill that out soon. TransLink is looking at three possible routes for a gondola up to SFU, two of them leaving production way. One of them has a sort of dog leg to go around the Forest Grove residents, some of whom are very put off by the idea of gondolas over their backyards. And the other route, I believe, goes from Lake City Way, which would mean there would be a point to that station existing. Yeah, like I think there is a clear benefit to the route that goes directly from Production Way University to the SFU Exchange. It's like half the time, I think. It's it's ha- it's half the time and would be substantially cheaper to build. Mm-hmm. And I think you just have to accept a gondola. <laughs> like, I understand that people might be a little uncomfortable, but what are you doing in your backyard that, like, you're comfortable with your neighbors seeing from their deck that you wouldn't be comfortable with people seeing from above? And it's not like gondolas are even noisy. No, 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 no. It, this, is, this is going to be a quiet unobtrusive well no it might be obtrusive depending on how you categorize uh, something as obtrusive but it's i don't think it is going to be anything more than like a change to the visual skyscape uh, i think this is a bit of knee-jerk nimbyism indeed we call it not not over my nombyism not nombyism yes <laughs> not over my backyard One other place is that back in front yards were in the news recently was in the District of North Vancouver, where a recent council meeting was slated to consider a motion to prohibit holiday. Kill Christmas. Christmas lights and Halloween lights. (laughs) Yes. After 11 p.m., you'd have to turn your holiday lights off, your Christmas lights off at 11 p.m. And you couldn't turn them on until the following day. So I had to do a, Why? I had to do a bit of deep dive to figure out where the hell this motion came from. You know, this is the same council that banned pigeons, but then unbanned them when they realized it was all one councillor's specific grievance. And now I'm just like, is there one councillor whose neighbor has obnoxious Christmas lights? And I'm not sure. So at a November 6th meeting... They should know better. If that's the case, they should know better. Staff reported to council on nuisance lighting complaints over the past five years. They had shown that there had been a total of three complaints in five years over seasonal lighting, never more than one per year. So potentially it was just one person angry at their neighbor saying their their Christmas lights are too bright. Definitely feels that way. There are a number of like actual nuisance light issues of like people having giant pot lights or spotlights aimed at the street and annoying drivers. That could be a real issue. Just like nuisance noises could be a real issue. Ah, uh, yes, the traditional Christmas searchlight that is pointing directly out at the <laughs> at the street. Like there are some American esque Christmas light displays you see where they are borderline obnoxious bright, but I don't think we see those too often in Metro Van. Well, especially since everyone's moved towards those kind of 
mediocre LED bulbs. I'm, I'm, I kind of hate them. <laughs> DNV staff noted that there are five Metro Vancouver municipalities that regulate nuisance lighting, but have quote allowances for holiday lighting. And those are generally permitted and staff provided three options for council who at this meeting was apparently most interested in options two and three. So the first option was that all of your lights, every light you have outside, including holiday lights would have to point down. This obviously makes no sense. I think uh, the second yeah, option no. is what this motion was, which was to have seasonal lights permitted, but you have to turn them off at a certain time. And option three was, we're just going to keep thinking about it because those two options don't work. So staff brought option two to council. People got annoyed and the mayor and council and everyone just nixed that. What a tremendous waste of staff time and resources. Like, don't, don't keep working on it. It's Christmas lights. Just live with them. If someone, you know what? I, I have an alternative. If you must, if you must regulate this, which you shouldn't, stand at the street with a lumens meter. If the lumens illuminating, like radiating out to the street, exceed X number, and it must be very bright. Like I, I think that might be a better way of. Like it just prevents people from like doing the searchlights pointed out of the street thing mm -hmm. while still allowing people to put up quite a bit of holiday lighting. Indeed. And what kind of gets me is it, even drawing back to the religion questions is like, at some point, why are you flagging like two spe specific seasons here? Like you can kind of just have the same rule year round for outdoor lighting under the proposal yeah. you just had and you don't need to have an extra allowance for december or halloween it's it's one of those things that like there is law and then there is common sense and sure some christmas lighting displays might be a little garish but i i like it it's nice just talk to your neighbor like what on earth is what, is, what on earth is wrong with people <laughs> i just wish we could like get along to get along a little better or get elected to council pass a motion and try to ban pigeons yeah that's that's also an option i guess oh good for you dnv you've made the right decision this time while we're on the holiday theme for our vancouverada this week i thought we could talk about oranges mandarin oranges or satsumas in particular I am so glad that you brought this up because I was curious, why are Mandarin oranges a Christmas thing? Uh, and apparently, it's just a Canadian thing. Yeah, that was interesting to me. So I found both an advertorial in uh, the Daily Hive, I think it is, as well as another history article to draw this on. Basically, in 19th century Vancouver, the Japanese immigrants would get satsumas sent to them from their families back in Japan to celebrate the new year. So it was a tradition from the early Japanese Canadian community. And they began sharing these oranges in December with their neighbors. Everyone liked these oranges because they're pretty delicious. They're not too sweet. They're nice. They fall apart easily. A company formed up called the Oppenheimer Group that started importing them en masse in about 1884 or 1891. The two articles kind of contradict on this exact date, but late 19th century, they start mass importing these fruits. This company is kind of interesting because it was 
founded by five brothers who escaped the persecution of German Jews in Bavaria in the 19th century. And they originally worked in the gold rush in California. They moved up to BC to follow the gold rush here, and they were the suppliers. As the gold rush started to dwindle, they started an importing business here in Vancouver, and they were importing fruits and other produce. And so the Oppenheimer firm would work with the Japan Fruit Growers Cooperative and just import these Japanese mandarins every December in nice big wooden boxes and wrap each in green tissue for the holiday season. Now, one of these brothers, David Oppenheimer, was actually Vancouver's second mayor. Oh, nice little tie-in there. Yeah, he served for four consecutive annual terms between 1888 to 1891, and then in 1891, the oranges started arriving. The oranges quickly became popular across Canada. I think they were only briefly interrupted between 1939 and 45 when we just, you know, didn't want to talk to Japan. Yeah, that is the, that's the state of things. I mean, we're having a snit. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to come back to that because it's real dark. Mandarin oranges. <laughs> didn't know they were uniquely Canadian. Nice little Vancouver history to them. Yeah, that's marvelous. I, I, always, I always got like a, an orange in the toe of my stocking. Yeah, there was some speculation about why that specific tradition started, and no one knows exactly other than some speculation that during the Depression, it was a special treat that wasn't too expensive to give to your kid. Yeah, and it kind of fills the end of a stocking pretty well. Yeah. I think I think it might maybe it's a stocking's yeah. racer on that one. So yeah, have a nice mandarin orange this, this December. Yes, happy second week of Advent, the week of peace, and a... Joyous holiday season to everyone who is celebrating. We will be back next week with some talk on the response that has been filed by Michael Weeb to the petition to have him tossed off of Vancouver Council, as well as a couple of other interesting things, including the Esplanade Complete Street in North Vancouver. A study on whether neighborhood associations actually represent the neighborhoods they claim to. Spoiler alert, they don't. Nope. No, they don't. So, some fascinating stuff for you next week. I hope you all have a fantastic December. Make sure to stay safe out there on the roads. Do not drink and drive. And have a very good week. From Vancouver, I am Matthew Naylor. I'm Bushfield. Good night.